Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. He started baking at home and his sourdough bread has become a local success. We talked to Trent Haggerty, owner of the Little River Bread Company, about his move from home to a storefront in Canterbury. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. There's probably few things that are more inviting than the smell of freshly baked bread. Well, maybe coffee. And if you've ever tried to make bread yourself, you'll know there's quite a lot to it. Trent Haggerty is a young man with a passion for bread, and we first met him over a year ago when Connecticut East This Week did a feature on young farmers in the state, and Trent was selling his bread at a local farm stand. Since then, success has been swift for Trent, and he now has a storefront in the town of Canterbury. I caught up with him recently at his new bakery to find out more. Welcoming back to the podcast is Trent Haggerty, who is a baker. And we, of course, met you a year ago now, Trent. I can't believe a year has gone by when we did a podcast with yourself and Molly about Full Moon Farm in Hampton. And we were talking about the bread, which was being sold at the stand there. Things have moved on considerably. Are they not? Yes. Yeah, I now uh, have moved into my own retail and commercial bakery space in Canterbury, Connecticut, and it has been quite a process. It was something I tentatively had in the works, I believe, when we last spoke, but, you know, a lot changes in that process, and it's also something that was completely new to me, running a brick-and-mortar business, especially in food service. So that is, you know, it's been an incredible amount to learn in a very short period of time and a lot on the fly, but... Here I am, and it just feels like time is is flying since I've opened, you know, working sometimes 16-hour days, and I still love it at the end of the day, so I, I, I'm really happy where I am right now. We're going to get into all of that in just a bit. We are actually sat, so if people can hear in the background, it's like fans and it's like refrigerators going off, we are actually sat in the the space, the bakery here in Canterbury, and we'll talk more about that as well. But I just want to remind listeners a little bit, Trent, about your background and how you got into baking, because there were a couple of reasons why you did it. One was to do with it's like a health situation, and also then obviously the actual baking of the bread that was down to sort of somebody who influenced you as well, wasn't it? So tell us about those. Take us back to to those two things. Yeah. So I guess I'll start with with my influence in baking. I grew up in. Chittenden County, Vermont, towards Mount Mansfield, and there was a gentleman, an old French gentleman, Gerard Rubad, who was a incredible sourdough baker. He only baked a single type of bread, 
just one dough, 100 loaves or so a day, all in brick ovens, and did everything as true as he could to traditional French-style baking, room temperature, big wooden dough buckets and whatnot, and definitely, you know, a, a lot of charm around that bakery, but on top of that, the bread was unbelievable, and I grew up, my mom helped sell some of his bread at local farmer's markets, and there was definitely, you know, just a local following and some mystique around it, and being able to just get fresh baked bread, you know, once a week and tear into it on the way home and everything was an incredible memory. And he passed away several years ago and I began running into more and more bakeries in Burlington where I was living at the time or or that were serving Burlington were adding may contain tree nuts or cross-contamination warnings. And I have severe nut and peanut allergies and that became more and more challenging to fine bread that I could that I liked that I could eat too so um, that eventually motivated me actually to start baking bread as well and of course as you say despite the fact that uh, Gerard uh, sadly passed away you did manage to get an apprenticeship so tell us about that because you actually apprenticed with somebody with the same name yeah yeah so a Trent Cooper was an apprentice of Gerard and one of the only, if not the only guys to really like complete and stick it out a full apprenticeship with him. And after he had passed away, I know they had some trouble finding people to bake in the bakery and Gerard's daughter actually reached out to Trent and asked if he would come and bake in the bakery again. And he's, you know, breathed some life into there, got the ovens going again, and is really doing a wonderful thing and making some incredible bread again for the community. So I was fortunate enough to actually reach out to Trent and ask if I could apprentice under him and he took me in and taught me a lot in a pretty short period of time really really intensive you wake up at 11 p.m go fire the ovens at 2 a.m make bread throughout the day finish cleaning the bakery wouldn't get home until about 1 2 p.m at the time or the Airbnb I was living in actually for the time being because it was middle of COVID and you know trying to navigate living situations month by month was difficult but um yeah it was an incredible experience and really got me started on the right path then of course qualify as it were you've become this baker a phenomenal baker baking incredible breads and then you started up at home baking which how was that because that's sort of limiting in a way because I'm guessing you know you've trained in a commercial kitchen situation then you come back to you know baking at home and talk to us around that because as I say you know there is a difference between a commercial oven and obviously like you know the ovens that we also like cook our stuff in yeah absolutely so my partner Molly can attest to this was not possibly the most enjoyable situation for her to share a kitchen with at the time but I had learned a lot through my apprenticeship and through my own research about how ovens basically work and what makes a good bread oven. And a lot of bread baking comes from appropriate transfer of radiant as well as convective heat and different properties of the oven. Different areas hold certain amounts of heat. And basically, you want a lot of thermal mass in your oven. So, you know, people will bake in Dutch ovens at home, bake fantastic bread. That's like a little mini brick oven, basically. And I started needing to bake more than one loaf at a time. So rather than getting two or three Dutch ovens, ovens and I ended up just lining the uh, shelves and the floor of uh, 
our home oven with fire brick and steaming it a couple different ways and you take like four hours to preheat the home oven before everything got hot enough and that was not the most sustainable option but uh, at the same time I was working begun baking bread for Atticus in New Haven and was doing that a couple days a week and I learned a lot uh, to increase my efficiency elsewhere and was able to apply that knowledge and I eventually saved up and got a, a big electric deck oven too that really was able to increase my capacity. I was going to say, so if you, know, you step away again from, from Atticus, decide to go out on your own, bake this incredible bread, the following seemed to come very quickly, did it? I mean, you know, you, you're constantly sort of like selling out of this incredible bread that you bake. Yeah, it's, it's been a bit of a shock. I had from selling through the Full Moon Farm Stand in Hampton, where I got started under a cottage food license, uh, I had a bit of a following already, and then started selling to Lapsley Orchard in Pomfret, and from there, word of mouth has kind of spread. So once I actually moved into a retail space, I had a bit of that to support me, but it's really been also the community of Canterbury that has helped me take it off. I neglected to do much advertising to begin with. I'd done a little bit of social media stuff in the past for work and I just don't don't love it trying to see how much word of mouth and gorilla style marketing I could do. So the first couple of weeks I was here I just would bake big batches of bread and go around town and hand it out to whoever I could find and that started to bring in some people and then it really just started to take off and it's it's a wonderfully supportive community and it's crazy though to not be able to keep up with the demand working on increasing my production capacity down the line it's going to be you know a big a big investment and something that I need to keep researching a little bit more but I have some options lined up in the near future. Talk to us a little bit about you know the feedback you get from customers because bread is one of those things which can be really hit or miss. Yours is clearly a hit. What is it that people love about the bread that you bake? Thank you very much. um, That's quite a compliment. I find that the simplicity of it, especially my French country style sourdough, is just a flour, water, and salt. It's currently I use an organic stone ground uh, whole wheat flour from Quebec. And if you know how to manage the sourdough and to make the yeast and bacteria happy, you can create a very tasty bread with very little. And a lot of it comes down to science and the understanding of the different interactions of all of the different parts of the dough, the sugars, the starches, yeast and bacteria, everything like that. And a lot of it comes from learning to bake from someone, Trent Cooper, who really is focused on just that type of dough. And also just having the memory of what really good bread tasted like from Gerard growing up as well. And Trent's bread's fantastic too. And just having that that exposure, I think, is really important because there are people that love white breads, really soft, squishy white breads and stuff. And like, no, each to their own and everything. But I do find that people that scoff at darker like breads and more crustier things have not everyone this is kind of overgeneralizing but have been exposed to you know poorer quality crustier breads and stuff versus fresh baked stuff and having something fresh baked alone really is is key to being my bread doesn't last that long there's not really any enrichments in it but being able to get bread like that that doesn't have to go through a supply chain it's just you know you can't do that at a larger scale too easily have you increased the variety since, obviously, you were sort of like baking at home? I mean, how many types of, of bread are you doing now? I'm guessing you've probably added a few to the list, haven't you? I've added 
a handful of regular menu items and uh, still all doing just whole loaves of bread. But let's see, I, I, I do a baker's special every week that's rotating, and that has been more work than I anticipated, but also it's really fun. It keeps me on my toes, but having to kind of develop and or learn a new recipe every week and a new type of bread has been very interesting. But another thing I've run into is where I grew up in Vermont, there aren't at the time I was living at least rye breads weren't super popular and in this area there was a lot of demand for rye breads especially whole rye breads and more like rustic European style rye breads and that is a type of sourdough that I was not as experienced with and have taught myself very quickly how to uh, bake a better rye bread I'm still learning a lot about it that's um, it's very interesting to see you know regional preferences come into play with stuff like that and now you've moved into the retail space and it's coming up for almost about six months since you've been here saying you're doing anywhere between about 60 to 85 loaves a day I mean how much of an increase is that against what you used to do so I guess my capacity has increased somewhat with just more space and more equipment but I also just have an outlet now for that I can do this every day of the week and it's not completely taking over our home kitchen and preventing us from cooking dinner or whatnot because there were definitely some accommodations we had to make for that thank you molly it's probably five four or five fold what i was doing before four was more kind of like really large bakes and not having enough refrigeration to cold proof loaves so doing everything ambient temperature so working like a 11 p.m to 9 a.m the next day straight mixing and baking everything and now i'm able to get a little bit more sleep and kind of uh, batch things out in a more efficient way. Yeah, I was going to say, because I was looking at, um, you know, your various like social media sites uh, and the website as well, and I noticed that certain days, certain breads are available, which is actually quite nice because it's sort of like, you think, oh, yeah, I must get down there on that particular day because I want that, you know, type of bread. And then, like you said, you've got that day where you've got the rotating one. So that's always, I'm sure, a nice surprise for people as well. Yeah, yeah. So I figured uh, keep the menu small and focus on keeping my quality and my efficiency high so I can keep the production levels the maximum because if I do sell out every single day, that doesn't help anybody. And I really do want to make the best breads I possibly can make and doing just two breads a day means you know if some bake at slightly different oven temperatures and times or require different proofing times I can have greater attention to it and another reason for that is I have a massive mixer that is a little bit yes it is it is it is very large (laughs) Uh, the the listeners can't see but uh, yes it is not your your kitchen aid size thing it's probably about a hundred times larger so uh, yeah a lot of dough obviously gets made in there doesn't it yeah yeah and you kind of have to mix a lot of dough in it as well um which is the the downside to having such a large mixer but i really it's a spiral mixer if you're not familiar with it it's a little bit different than like a KitchenAid is called a planetary mixer and rather than the arm moving around inside the bowl the arm is stationary and rotates a coiled shape that slaps the dough against the bowl that rotates. Um, so it kind of mimics a hand rota- ro- uh, mixing kind of movement versus just uh, mashing the dough together. It actually folds it over on itself a little bit. And because of that movement, you have to have a certain amount of dough in the mixer. Was one of your concerns, you know, when you, you got this space? I mean, obviously, it's always great to hear of any business, you know, expanding, doing well. But did you have concerns about, you know, scaling something up, about keeping that quality there? Yeah, I definitely did. And that is actually part of the reason why I prefer to do larger batches of a smaller menu and limited offerings. Because when I'm doing all one dough, I can keep my focus on that 
specific dough and make sure that the quality maintains the same throughout all of it. I'm not overproofing part of it or underproofing part of it. There's not a variance between half of the batch. And that's definitely been a concern of mine, but the way I was taught being from a baker that does do just one type of dough and then Atticus was similar to that. We did multiple doughs, but we, we batched them in ways that allowed us to make a large amount and had one person mixing and following it through until just about the shaping process. That really was a, both were crash courses in, in increasing production while maintaining quality. And it's, it's an old trade, and these are things that you know really are not every bakery does. There are obviously bakeries that have thousand things in the menu and that's incredibly difficult to do and it's it's a different focus for sure the other thing as well is you know since you've expanded obviously some things have to give you used to deliver the breads i remember a year ago when we spoke you were able to deliver bread as well you're not able to do that anymore do you sort of miss that in a way it was nice to have a personal connection to some of my neighbors and especially dropping off the bread at the farm stand and being able to spend a little more time there and see them was was really wonderful i still do occasionally run into some people i'm a little more rushed when i do drop off the bread at the stands these days but having the retail space and i'm actually i'm baking and working the retail counter. More recently, I've had a little bit of help, and my mom and dad have actually been helping me a couple days a week just with retail space. Before the first couple months, it was just me here, and it was... You know, I got to meet a lot of people and interact with everyone, which is really wonderful. It is a challenge to do the production and the retail at the same time and be able to dedicate the energy and the in the time to talk to people that I really want to. But I have a retail background, so that is that has helped with that as well. Nice for people to actually meet the person behind their bread so they can still do that. I mean, like you said, I know it's a, it's a time crunch sometimes, but at least they can still walk in. They're still able to speak to the baker, ask those questions about the bread and fully understand what it is that they're actually getting over the counter so they must still appreciate you know having that 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 interaction with you because that doesn't happen that often does it you know you can't go into like a a supermarket i know the bread in supermarkets is very very different but i mean that's not a sort of interaction you're going to have with somebody so you i'm guessing you still enjoy that like you said but you just have to be mindful of the amount of time that you spend yeah that's an interesting point because i i guess i hadn't thought about that that much there aren't that many places that you can go into and actually speak with the people producing the food. I find that bakeries are fun to watch myself and especially bread bakeries with the you know big wooden bench and a lot of tools that people are unfamiliar with and that was important to me when I was designing quote unquote with the you know thinking about the uh, the layout was to have an open layout with a counter at the front so that everyone can see the full production space and also I can work and talk to people at the same time. I like to be able to share that with people. <laughs> yeah I think there's nothing more fun than you know walking into somewhere like here or you go to a restaurant and they've got what they call that open kitchen yeah so like so you can actually see the process you know whether or not you're necessarily interested i mean that's another thing but i personally find it's really fun to be able to see something you know and see the hard work that's going on and you think oh so this is what happens and, and that what's that's what happens it is a great space here it's very convenient as well you've got this great counter here we've we're sat at so i'm guessing one of the preparation tables that uh, you must use to bake the the bread does it all seem real to you i know that sounds like a bit of a daft question to say but does it you know six months on how do you feel about it everything happens so fast and i've been working a lot i had my first two-day weekend i think last week or two weeks ago when i changed my hours to my winter hours i was looking back at photos of the space when we had just moved the oven in and had the counter in and i was just about ready to open and even 
you know, having my base equipment here compared to what I have now is it's, it was pretty bare looking and it, um, it, it moves quickly. You, you, your thought process about expenses and about how you're going to grow your business really changes as you start to learn what your priorities are. And it's, um, it, it does not feel real. It really doesn't. It's uh... <laughs> still getting to grips with it. Interestingly as well, looking at your opening times as against other bakeries, you're open in the afternoons, not the morning. So just talk us through that. Yeah. So I, I, being that I only sell whole loaves of bread, I've found that a lot of my customers are more available or especially now that like school's gone back, there was a big shift in my traffic towards later in the day. So people coming home on their way from work and stuff are grabbing bread for dinner and, and whatnot. And that seems to make more sense for more people. So that's why I have kind of abnormal bakery hours. Also the location we're at too. Yeah, I'm right behind a, a Cumberland Farms gas station and um, it's it's connected to this building and there's a lot of traffic very early in the morning. And then when I was actually originally opening around my first week, I think it was like 10 or 11, which is not you know, terribly early, but it was a bit of a dead spot and I wasn't getting much traffic until later. So I figured I'd change my hours before people to get too set on and used to what my, uh, what, what they are. And, um, it seems to work out great so far and it's, you know, I don't think other bakers have that luxury. So I'm really, really fortunate to be able to, I, I still have pretty early mornings some days, uh, just due to only having one oven and being able to do 12 loaves at a time. But for the most part, I, can, I have an option that allows me to grow out of that once I can increase my production. Yeah, I was going to say, what, what, what is the plan? As I say, it's, it's six months here, but uh, you know, your business has grown exponentially from obviously when you first started it. But what, what sort of is the, the long-term plan, do you think? So a couple pathways I'm interested in pursuing. Um, my number one priority is just increasing my production capability for bread and while maintaining the quality and keeping everything the same just so I'm not selling out completely. I have a couple ways of doing that but the primary bottleneck for me right now is is my small oven. I know I physically can produce more loaves in a day. I've done it at Atticus and I can definitely work more to produce more if uh, it's just right now it's it's you know, only 12 lo- loaves in the oven at a time at a certain point. That's the 10 hours of baking straight and I've got to sleep at some point. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But I mean, you know, the great thing is, of course, the demand is there. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, for a, a small business in this environment still, as we continue to so hopefully head out, obviously the COVID situation. I mean, it's just great to see a business succeeding. It's just, as I say, it's an incredible success that you've had, but then, you know, success comes from obviously creating stuff that people want. And they, uh, they clearly, as I say, do want to taste the, uh, the little river bread company's bread. Trent Haggerty, owner of the little river bread company. It's always a pleasure talking to you again, continued success and congratulations on your expansion into this space. Thanks ever so much for joining us again on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And if you want to try Trent's various breads, then you can find all the details about the Little River Bread Company on Facebook and his website by searching for the Little River Bread Company in Canterbury, Connecticut. Got deer problems? Let us help. With Green Valley Tree LLC's Deer Preventive Spray, guaranteed to keep deer away from your precious plants, bushes, and trees for up to six months. With cold weather on its way, deer will be looking for sources of food. 
Don't let your front and backyards become their pantry. Call Green Valley Tree today at 860-234-4041 or visit us at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. Attorney General William Tong announced recently Connecticut's first payment from the multi-state Johnson & Johnson opioid settlement case of $42.7 million. 52 states and territories reached an agreement with the pharmaceutical giant and three major pharmaceutical distributors in an historic $26 billion settlement deal. Tong said the deal isn't just the money. The firms have to stay out of the opioid business for at least the next 10 years, and the settlement places other strict injunctive terms on the way they do business. They need to provide a whole bunch of data and metrics and information to allow us to track pills, to track rates of addiction, to track where pills are going, who's prescribing the pills, and it enables us to do a lot more enforcement work. So we've focused so far on manufacturers. We've driven a few of them into bankruptcy, including Purdue Pharma, Endo, Malincrot. The money will be administered by a new Opioid Settlement Advisory Committee, which was set up during the last legislative session and will be responsible for Connecticut's total settlement figure of $300 million. Wyndham Town Councillor Dawn Niles is one of the committee's newly appointed members and said she has first-hand knowledge of how devastating the opioid crisis has been over the years. A lot of people don't know, I ran a walk-in crisis centre on Main Street here in the 80s. And... I was there for 10 years. I watched this happen slowly over time, and it just was horrendous. Now I get to see it as wife of a volunteer firefighter and all those fire departments, including Willimantic, that goes out to these calls. There are still further opioid settlement cases being negotiated with Walmart and CVS, which Connecticut is part of. The new London Police Department unveiled their new Apex Officer virtual training system to the public at a special showcase event recently. The $100,000 virtual reality training aid was purchased with a grant and makes New London Police the first in the state to have such a training system. Regina Mosley is a New London resident and decided to take the NLPD up on their offer to see the system in action. Honestly, I felt anxiety even walking into the police station as a black woman and a black individual interacting with the police is kind of nerve-wracking. I felt a lot of anxiety just sitting here listening to the presentation, but it's a different perspective. Seeing the Apex training, I feel a little more comfortable. still have some anxiety, but um, I think the simulations were good, and I'm hopeful that they will be beneficial to all the officers in the city. The Apex system is widely used across the nation by many other police departments and New London Police intend to use it to help train officers how to de-escalate situations they will face on a daily basis. Dequan Stuckey is one of two New London Police community engagement officers and has trained on the system several times. I think the Apex training is great, especially when you talk about the scenarios that you can make happen when it comes to what we deal with on the outside, how we can get better, what we did right, not necessarily what we, we did wrong, but it's always about betterment of the officer because when we're better, the community is better, and as a whole we can get to a level of communication where we understand each other and they understand what we do and they understand why we have to do the things we do. 
Although the Apex training system is primarily for officer training, the public will get the chance to try it for themselves at public outreach events and will also be used when the police department reintroduces Citizens Police Academies at the police station in 2023. And Naval Submarine Base New London held a ribbon-cutting ceremony to unveil their newest submarine pier. The new Pier 32 costs $70 million to construct and replaces the original pier that was built in 1978. US Congressman Joe Courtney was at the dedication ceremony and said new infrastructure such as the pier is essential to the sub-base in maintaining its future. It is built for the class of submarines that's under construction a short distance away down in Groton, Virginia class program, and with uh, Pier 31 on deck, which will be extended to accommodate the larger Virginia payload. This is exactly, again, where this base needs to go to be part of the most important mission in our country's national defense. Captain Ken Curtin is the 53rd commanding officer of the sub-base and explained the advantages the new pier has over the previous one. This new pier can comfortably berth Virginia or Los Angeles-class submarines on both sides, with the major impact being its width. Think of it as a double wide, able to accommodate cranes and trucks in support of one boat on one side of the pier, while in no way impeding the services supporting the other boat on the other side of the pier. This is a major upgrade from the 1978 pier that really we could only sustain work on one submarine at a time. The new Pier 32 is 65 feet wide and 523 feet long and is able to accommodate two submarines at once, which the previous pier couldn't, and is constructed from materials that will wear better, last longer and require less maintenance. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.